This is episode 15, back at it. And, uh, oh, it's been a few weeks since I recorded one of these, so it's always exciting to get back at it. And uh, today I'm joined by Dr. Vicky Thanapal, who's one of my professors from University of Surrey. So thanks for being here, Vicky. No, great. Great to be on. I know, probably something a little bit different for you, so it's kind of nice, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so you're over in... Uh, uh, in London right now and uh, kind of enjoying all the <laughs> all there is over there. <laughs> well, I'm enjoying it from the safety of my front room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I haven't been venturing out much. No. And um, so two of the, um, there were two modules in particular that I, um, well, I enjoyed every class I took up at Surrey, but a couple in particular that were fun. Um, so child law and family law. And um, today we're going to focus more on family law topics. And the thing that I like about family law is that, um, well, first of all, that the, the laws in England around marriage and divorce are fairly different than uh, Canada. Um, there's a bit of kind of common ground when it comes to cohabitation. And that one is an interesting topic because it's, it seems like it's one of those topics that people think they know a lot about, but they actually don't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, that's not usually a good thing. So hopefully we'll kind of go through some topics and, uh, yeah, people will, uh, get some accurate information on it. Um, so I prepped a few topics with you ahead of time and I think we'll just kind of jump right in and we'll probably kind of move around a bit yeah, yeah. See what happens but um so we'll start off on uh i think we'll start with a good one which is um well actually how about we ease into that one i was going to start with gay marriage but i'm like eh, we'll, we'll make that the second <laughs> or third one but um so actually one of the so yeah I'll, I'll throw this one to you so i think we'll start with um voidable and void marriages the distinction okay. and um then we'll jump into specifically uh consummation as it is for uh voidable marriage yeah yeah so i'll hand that over to you <laughs> well at the risk of sounding like i'm delivering a lecture which is not what i want to do um you know i think when you look at the layman, I mean, a lot of times, and you ask them, you know, how, how would you end a marriage, right? The first thing they come up with is divorce. I mean, that's, that's what we know. That's what we are familiar with. Um, and not a lot of people um, know that, you know, a marriage can be annulled. Um, so every year when I, when I do this part of the lecture, I always have students, you know, like quizzical expression on their face, like, oh, hang on, what's an annulment, you know? How does it differ from a divorce? I said, no, well, they're two different things. Um, and that's when you explain to them, you know, that um, it, it's quite curious, actually, that a divorce works prospectively, um, that it recognizes that a marriage has existed and now that marriage comes to an end and, and the parties are divorced, you know. Whereas a, an annulment works retrospectively. It basically says that this marriage never was. So conceptually, I think um, students, well, not just students, really, uh, just people, you know, um, conceptually, they sort of grapple with it because they look at it as sort of rewriting history. I mean, how do you move back in time, right? 
if, if you've got married, you've underwent the ceremony, you, you've called each other, you know, husband and wife, and now you're saying that, you know, this marriage never exists. Technically, you never got married, you're single. Um, so it kind of plays with our conception of, 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 of time in general, right? You know, how, how do you go back in history and say something didn't exist? Um, but then you explain it to them and you say, well, the reason is, okay, voidable marriages, um, annulments, right, are granted only for certain types of marriages. It's not up to you to decide whether you want to rewrite history. It's whether the circumstances of your marriage are such that allows you to do that. Um, and it only allows you to do that under very specific um, circumstances. So it has to be either a void marriage, which is invalid from the beginning, due to lacking some factors, you know. So basically the marriage wasn't created properly. And so if it wasn't created properly, then it doesn't exist as, as what we recognize a marriage should be. Um, and people get that, students understand that. They're like, okay, right, you know, if I'm creating like a jigsaw and I miss out an essential piece of that jigsaw, then yeah, you can't say that the picture is there. It, you know, it's, it's incomplete, so it doesn't exist. Where things get really confusing is where you tell them, well, hang on a minute, um, annulments can be obtained for another category of marriages, which is the voidable marriage. And the voidable marriage is a perfectly valid marriage. So if the parties are happy with that, they're married, you know, and no, nobody's going to challenge that. However, this marriage lacks an essential substantive ingredient or what you know the, the law considers to be an ex essential substantive ingredient so that a marriage in essence hasn't been created so the marriage in form is there right but if you delve down into the substance of it of what a marriage relationship should be something essential substantial is missing and so the parties have the option to now have their marriage announced now, if they choose not to exercise that option and they are perfectly happy with their marriage, despite the fact that one substantial essential ingredient is missing, then, you know, that's, that's their choice. And in the eyes of the law, that marriage is perfectly fine. Um, now, to me, because I've been doing this for so many years, the distinction seems simple. But when you're explaining it to someone for the first time, it, it you know, it's new. It's new to them, firstly, because, you know, Annulment as a concept is new. They've never heard of it. They've only heard of divorce. And then when you tell them the reason, you know, behind annulment, who and when you can get annulled, and you tell them, well, there are two separate categories, you know, and you're sort of moving back in time, that conceptually can get a bit challenging. But, you know, it takes you a few goals, but once, once you get it, you see sense perfectly. Yeah. <clears throat> I know... Um... It's one of those things that uh, particularly, yeah, because it's just like, if you want to end your marriage, it's divorce. You know, yeah. th there's never really been even prior to um, the only time I ever heard the word annulment was like in a handful of TV shows prior to <laughs> like, it just is, it's not a very common thing that people. Yeah. It's falling out of, well, I won't say fashion. Um, it's just that I think these days, um, people are not as, you know, wedded to religion as they were before. And previously, you know, divorce is a sin, is seen as a sin. And if you were religious or, 
or if you were from a culture that sort of frowned on divorce, you know, may not even be religious, might be cultural. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, I can imagine that you would have some in- inhibitions. You know, you don't want to be labeled or tagged with the term divorcee because it carries a sort of stigma in, in your religion or in your community. Um, you, you might not be able to marry again in your church or your, or your temple, whatever it may be. Um, so, yeah, but I think as time goes by, um, certainly in the UK as, at least, you know, they are not a very overtly religious um, country. Um, and so the stigma with divorce, I would say, other than in certain communities um, or, or adherence, strict adherence to religion, by in general, I think divorce is not such a big deal, you know. Um, and so people go for divorce these days. So I think statistics, I, I can't quote it off the top of my head, but I mean, if I'm sure you remembered when we did in lecture last year, the number of divorce, <laughs> divorce decrease that uh sorry annulment decrees that are granted a tiny they're, they're tiny yeah and well and and one of the kind of funny things that i've i was saying for quite a while with um just sort of different laws in england is that the at times the lack of um the separation of church and state is kind of surprising um, because you wouldn't normally sus- uh, expect that from, uh, like if it's in the States, you can kind of see that because they're a lot more open about how religious they are or not in certain cases. Um, but one of the, so for, uh, voidable marriages, one of the kind of things that I always thought was unusual is the fact that consummation is still a factor and yeah, off, actually. Yeah. And you would just kind of think like that. I think a lot of people would find that surprising. Yeah. Um, There's a historical basis for that, really. Obviously, you're referring to the first two, um, the first two grounds for voidable marriages, which is lack of lack of consummation, either due to inability or uh, deliberate refusal on the part of one party. So the fact that the, par- the parties have, have not had sexual intercourse after the marriage. Um, there, there are a couple, it's, I would say it's a, it's a holdover, it's a historical holdover. And here is where, you know, you talk about there's lack of separation within church and state. Um, this is, I think, a perfect example to show how um, what was formerly, you know, part of the church has blended over into, um, into now what we call state laws, right? Um, so historically, you know, th- there was no such thing as divorce. Um, so, so, or shall I say, a marriage cannot be dissolved, right, or ended. Um, so if you're married, you're married for life. You know, the only way that it could end was on, upon death. So people who were trapped in unhappy or unfulfilling mar- marriages had really very little option. And the church allowed divorce um, in certain very specific and extreme circumstances. Um, And you had to fit very neatly within those circumstances to be allowed to divorce. And even then, there were different categories. So you had sort of a divorce where you were not allowed to remarry. So you no longer had to live together. You no longer had to fulfill your marital obligations to each other. But neither of you could sort of move on because... You were still, and that kind of divorce was granted 
if I'm not mistaken, upon adultery. Mm. Um, so it was kind of a punishment, as in you will no longer um, get the benefits of my, of you know, being my spouse, but you can't go and get anyone else either. So you're kind of stuck in that, you know, purgatory for the rest of your life. Um, and then there was this other category of divorce where you could remarry. So which is the type of divorce as we understand it today. And that could only be granted if you showed certain um, defects in your marriage. And one of those defects was, of course, the inability to, the lack of consummation. Um, so so there, there we go, you know, and that evolved through time to become a Nauman and, and then we had a category of divorce. Um, but if you go back historically centuries ago, there, there was neither, right? There was only the ending of a marriage and what you could or could not do beyond that. Yeah, sorry, a little technical difficulty there. So just running back. Um, but yeah, just the, I, I know, and, and it's always kind of funny when you have a bunch of uh, university aged kids talking about consummating a relationship and then it <laughs> may or may not work out depending on how it goes. So it's always a little bit of fun when, when talking well. about that. I was just talking about this. I was speaking to an ex-colleague um, yesterday, actually, and she she's now teaching family law at the university where she like, she used to be at Surrey, and she's gone to another university. She's just never taught family law. She's just started. And the family law convener over there, who is a good friend of mine, by the way, um, as well, and they, they were doing, you know, she was saying, oh, we did consummation, and um, he went through in detail with them <laughs> the impotence trials of, you know, at the turn of the century, um, which were really grueling, you know, with the impotence trials where um, medical evidence needed to be adduced of the fact that, you know, usually the male could not be able to consummate. And I mean, I won't go into detail how these medical mm -hmm. examinations and observations were carried out, but obviously you can imagine they are very, very intimate, very private, very embarrassing, I can imagine. Um, and all of this were put in, in public record because they were court case, you know. Uh, and back in those days, you didn't have, well, obviously porn was not there at the tip of your fingers and you didn't have Playboy on the shelves and stuff like that. <laughs> so this was the version of, you know, scandalous sort of, you know, exciting stuff for people in those ages. And you had court reporters there reporting it in the tabloids, well, the juicy details. Um, and people would buy it because, you know, there was no alternative that you could have to sort of listen to this, um, you know, very sort of sexual things, I guess. Um, you know, these, these days it would be considered a run-of-the-mill boring. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> No, I know. That's always the, uh, yeah, that's always the joy of those types of topics. That's for sure. Exactly. Um, but yeah, with students, it always sort of strikes a chord with students as being, as being strange as well, because it's consummation is defined as sexual intercourse after the marriage ceremony has taken place. So, I mean, you could have had sexual intercourse, you know, as a couple, hundreds of times before you got married, that doesn't count for anything, you know. But as long as you haven't done it after the marriage, that could conceivably be a basis on you to apply for an annulment. 
And so students, I've had students ask me, is it, is it because of um, like virginity, you know? Um, and if it is so, that doesn't make any sense because today we have people cohabiting, you know, very few people are you know, virgin before marriage. So at least if we talk in this context, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Of, of the UK. So it doesn't make sense. Um, so why is it, you know, that it has to be so specific after the marriage? Um, so again, you have to tell them, you have to look at where this law and where it has evolved from and why it was a basis for the marriage to end in the first place. Um, it was at a time where where virginity was important because you were looking at a time where there were no such thing as DNA test. So a man has to be very certain that any children and potential heirs were his children. So if there was any, um, I don't know, hint, you know, that the woman was not pure, or she could be carrying another man's child, right, you know, this, this would be disastrous. Another reason as well, I would say is, again, and I, I think still today, a lot of people see marriage as <clears throat> the basis for starting a family, all right? Um, and, and that essentially comes with having children. And so if you do not, you know, commit or perform the act that is necessary for having children, then are you really married in substance, you know, because you're not fulfilling the ultimate purpose. So it is a historical holdover, right? I mean, today, if you talk about inheritance issue, um, if somebody really wanted to be sure that their children, if a man really wanted to be sure that his children is his, well, there's DNA test. if you talk about the purpose of marriage these days, a lot of people are now choosing the child-free lifestyle. Um, they are getting married for companionship, for a lot of more, I would say, sort of higher level psychological reasons, emotional and psychological reasons, rather than procreation and you know, protection of your, of your children. Um, so again, you know, consummation may not be the first thing on their list if you talk about such couples. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you dive deep enough into it, you say, well, this this really is, you know, archaic. This part of the law really is archaic. Um, but yeah, it is a historical holdover. <clears throat> yeah, well, and I think that's the difference too, because um, like between Canada and England, just because uh, England is so much older, like, yeah so much older than than Canada so our laws developed um well obviously there's a lot of the influence from uh England because you know those are the people that came and settled over here um and the French too I guess and um but yeah but as far as like these types of laws like you just don't really see that type of stuff in and in the states too you know it's it's less so just because the historical aspect of it just doesn't run as deep compared to England. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure actually because i i have to you know admit you know ignorance of Can- canadian law in any kind of specific detail but i suspect if you look if you look there are provisions for annulment you you mentioned french french canada um interestingly the French had some of the worst, most grueling impotence trials. So even <laughs> in the civil law, yeah, even in the civil law system, the inability to consummate is not just a, um, it's not it's not just a sort of common law thing or an English thing. I mean, if you look at all the European Christian countries, 
um, you know, certainly France, Spain, I think one thing in common, I guess, you could say they were the Catholic countries. So, which I suppose is not surprising because then it was the Church of Rome that dealt with this. Um, but yeah, the inability to consume it was a major factor. Well, and <clears throat> anytime I've heard of annulments um, over here, um, it was always through the church. So you would always, you would get an annulment through the church. So it would make sense then that certain criteria such as consummation would be yeah. important, you know, it'd be relevant to that type of um, relationship or that type of status. But I know it's always funny to look at how, and just the fact that it's still in, in UK law, it's like, oh, just yeah. one of those things, yeah. It's, it's all, it's in lots of laws, actually. I mean, even in Singapore, it's still in, the, nobody uses it. Um, I, I don't know, one or two <laughs> cases a year, if that. Um, but it, it is, like I said, it's a, it's a holdover from history. Um, I suppose because no one uses it and no one is really interested in it except for law students who have to be taught it as part of their course. It just doesn't receive any attention. So no one has sat down and said, well, hang on, do we, need, do we still need this? Does this make sense in today's context? Um, it's just there. And since it doesn't bother anyone, except, yeah, for the handful of you know cases a year that actually do need to use it and to be fair out of the tiny number in the uk of annulments um they are not based on consummation anyway they are based on the other grounds mm -hmm. so even where people do annul which they don't anymore they're not they are not annulling it on the basis that they haven't had sex um so I think it's, it's, it's something that is so underused and ignored that there is no will um, to devote the energy and say, well, should we do something about it? Should we repeal the law? Should we redesign the law? Um, it's just then it doesn't bother anyone. Uh, that's the one thing I really thought was interesting about, and, and in different areas of law, when you just see, um, I know it's one of those things like you'll see it on Facebook, every now and then there's like these types of um, little videos or whatever that are like, Oh, things that you can't believe are actual laws yeah, yeah. or whatever, you know? And, yeah, yeah. and they show them in like different jurisdictions and whatnot. But yeah, it's funny because um, it, it takes a lot of effort to repeal laws and to replace them. And it's just one of those things. If it's, if it's there and it's not really, it's not really yeah. serving a purpose, but it's not serving, it's not negative. It's not detrimental either. They'll just leave it. <laughs> yeah. It's not hurt. Like I said, it's not hurting anyone. I mean, every couple of years you will see, you know, like essay questions. And, and again, I haven't seen this debate appear anywhere other than exam papers, just to, you know, to give students something to discuss about, should we abolish the law of nullity and just have a single law of divorce, et cetera. Especially now that, you know, divorce has become no fault, mm -hmm. right? Or, well, will be this sometime this year anyway. So, you know, getting divorced is previously you could say, okay, you know, divorce is painful, etc. You, you had to prove certain facts. So if you had a ground for annulment, that's easier. Um, you don't even have that reason anymore. Divorce is now sort of really become a paper process, right? It's an issue of filing it. So even that reason to preserve the law of annulment um, has been taken away. So, yeah, you know, you see this, or should we just do away with it altogether, you know? Um, 
And the debate always boils down to, right, there's good reason for doing away with it because very few people use it. It reflects a historical um, con context. There's no longer a reality, etc. But what do we achieve if we get rid of it? How will our position improve? No, it won't improve. It won't. But what we will get is perhaps some detriment for the tiny, you know, handful of people to whom it does matter that they get an annulment. So we've taken that choice away from them. Well, the majority, yeah, it's fine. You know, they won't miss it. So if it's not hurting anyone, why take that choice away from that, from that small minority to whom it does matter? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, a, it's one of those things like always having the option available, you know, if it's not, if yeah. it's not detrimental, why not have the extra option? Exactly. Um, so to me, I don't see it as a big thing. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agitate for change in this area. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's fine. Yeah. You, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's not causing any, any, I would say defects in the law. It's not causing any problems to, to people. Um, and of course, students love this area because it's so underutilized that it doesn't change from year to year. The cases remain the same. Um, you, you don't have any new cases because there are no new cases. No one's getting annulled and you, no one's getting an annulment. Um, so yeah, it's just one part of your textbook that's more or less static. You know, mm -hmm. um, Where we are seeing movement today actually um, is, is the non-marriage, right? Where it doesn't, where you can't even get an annulment. It it doesn't even, it falls, you know, it's so defective in its creation <laughs> that that is not even a void marriage. Where the courts just say, there is nothing for us to do here. You know, we can't grant you a decree of annulment because what you have is so defective that in the eyes of the law it doesn't exist, even as a void marriage. Um, and that's where we are actually seeing case law, and I think perhaps a more urgent need. For, for parliament to do something. Yeah, well, and it's kind of funny because we, we were talking about um, obviously stuff that's a little bit more kind of off the cuff type thing, but um, jumping back to um, same-sex marriage, um, yeah. was that 2014 that was finally, it was something like that. Marriages Act 20. 13. I should know this off by heart. It's <laughs> yeah, quizzing you now. <laughs> yeah. Um, 2013. Something makes me want to check this, but yeah, 2013. Okay. Now, why was the UK so late to the party on that one? Because, I mean, and when was the, I guess the Americans were more recent than that, I think. I don't know. I can't really remember. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say America. Is, is it legal in america all states or yeah, some see, states? i don't know yeah um are they late to the party or i don't know i mean if you compare them to some other countries in the world they are not late to the party <laughs> yeah <laughs> i guess if you're comparing them to some like um canada to some of the western european countries then i guess they were a bit late to the party um, in terms of marriage, yeah. So it's 2013, very recent, you know. Um, but in terms of gay rights, right? Gay, gay rights, 
we have to go back to 2004. Because yeah, you know, marriage came in 2013, but same-sex couples could enter into civil partnership in 2004. Mm-hmm. And the civil partnership um, gives, you know, almost identical rights. Well, at least in terms of, let's say, financial um, provisions and division of assets upon the breakdown of the relationship, identical rights as marriage. So if you look at, I think, one of the very powerful um, reasons behind the gay rights lobby as to why they wanted um, formal legal recognition of their relationships, it was so that, you know, as a couple, their property would be protected if the relationship broke down. Um, If one party had contributed to the relationship, then, you know, this would be recognized in the division of assets. Um, Another very strong reason of course, was the ability to make legal decisions for each other, to be able to inherit in an equal manner from their partner. Um, So these are all, to me, extremely valid, entirely sensible um, reasons, you know, um, why there should be um, same-sex marriage, okay? The opposition, on the other hand, you know, groups that were opposed to same-sex marriage, of course, came at it from the angle that it goes against you know, our fundamental understanding of what is right and wrong, of what is, for lack of a better word, natural, um, right? Um, that, and of course, it goes into the, I mean, I won't go into it here, but of course, it goes into the offensive, okay? Mm-hmm. You have some fringe groups which liken it to, well, if you, you know, if two men could marry, then you, know, you could marry a cow or something like that. <laughs> I love you know? those arguments, they're so <laughs> dumb. <laughs> Well, they call it's the slippery slope argument. They say, well, if today, you know, then the next thing is you could marry a child. Now, none, none of these are equivalent arguments, right? The reason why you can't marry a child is because the child doesn't have a capacity to give consent, to understand what the relationship is and to consent. The reason why you can't marry a cow is because a cow doesn't have the capacity to give consent. Um, you could marry another person of any sex, adult, same person of any, as long as they have the capacity to consent, knowing the consequences of the legal uh, contract that they are getting into, right? Um, so these arguments to me hold no water, okay? Um, but, but of course, they come from certain quite vocal, some would say powerful groups in society. So, um, you know, they do have a voice, you know, lawmakers have to take into consideration these types of arguments, even though to me personally, I think logically they do not hold uh, water. Um, but of course, if you're a policymaker, the last thing you want to do is to piss off mm-hmm. a significant, you know, percentage of your, of your constituents, right? Um, so yeah, so you have to take into consideration that as well. There were some people who said, well, it just goes against certain values. You know, I don't have a problem with them doing that. But if they, are, if they can get married, then it just goes against certain values. It, it destroys the sanctity of marriage, right? So if they have something, then somehow that makes what we have less. Um, sure. But <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that, I think, is one of the explanations why the road has been slow, okay, because there is still a significant um, segment of the population, growing less, I think, in the UK, 
um, that resisted this, right? Um, Same-sex marriage was just too, it was just too much for them. It's just too much of a change mm -hmm. from what they understand, the, 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 the comfort zone of their world. Um, you know, it goes against the, what they understand in terms of their religion. Um, it frightens them. I think it, it frightens them. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so the Civil Partnership Act, but yet, you know, Parliament was also aware that there is, you know, gay people have the right to vote too, and people who support gay rights are voting too. So if you keep just sort of burying your head in the sand with this issue, you're going to lose those votes as well, you know. And, and people are going to question, you know, are you standing on the correct right side of history? If every other comparable nation in the world is joining the party, yes, to use your words, you don't want to be the last to join and be seen as backwards when it comes to a rights issue. So I think the Civil Partnership Act was that bridge, it was that compromise. It was saying, okay, we hear your arguments, you know, and we think the fact that you want to protect yourself, your pro property in a relationship, you want to be able to have, you know, the power to in inherit on the equal basis, um, the, the, the ability to make legal decisions for each other, um, to be recognized as a next of kin, you know, all of that. Yeah, right? Um, so we will create this new category of relationship, legally recognized relationship for you, which is almost identical to marriage, save for certain, certain you know, things like consummation, for example. Mm -hmm. As we know, that's not a, a ground to annul a civil partnership, but it is to annul a marriage. Um, and... So we had civil partnership um, and, you know, the world didn't fall down, the sky didn't fall down, you know, the world didn't implode on itself. Um, gay people became civil partnered and it was fine, right? And I think that was good because in a way it, it softened, I think, some of the more sort of straddling the fence type of people um, to say, hey, hang on, you know, we can extend, I don't even want to use the word extend rights, you know, rights are not for us to extend as and where we please. We can recognize, right, we, we can recognize the rights of gay people to be able to formalize their relationship and it doesn't hurt you in any way, you know, it doesn't affect you in any way, um, the world hasn't fallen apart and so once something becomes normalized, it's no longer different, it's no longer a threat. And the next step would just be marriage. And by which time people are like, oh, civil partnership, marriage, or, you know, whatever, right? Um, and that's, I, then to me, I think that's what happened. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and, and that raises an interesting question too, because when you look, so I remember when, when we were going through this, when, when we were really getting into the material, um, so you can have okay. something called a civil partnership, but it's not called marriage. So even though the you have very similar rights and status, legal status, the the you know words matter. Labels are important, yeah. and I, I can see both sides of the argument where it can be frustrating to not have an actual marriage. You have a civil partnership, but then again 
you know, it just becomes one of those things where, you know, again, that, that label matters. It is important for some that they're married versus in a civil partnership. And, you know, some people just don't care. They're just fine with whatever. And that's fair enough too. But it, but, you know, legally it can raise some interesting questions. Um, now with civil partnership and marriage, like how popular is like for same-sex couples, are we seeing that they're more often going into like they actually want to become married or are they just sort of sticking with a civil partnership? Or I, I imagine it's probably a bit of both. Yeah. Um, well, two, two things here to address. Um, firstly, labels, right? Um, as much as you sell it to say civil partnership in the areas that matter <laughs> is the same as marriage, the fact that you are refusing to give it the same label, you know, shows that it does matter, right? If it's the same, then just call it marriage. You know, the fact that you're still drawing a line shows that it matters to you. And if it matters to you, therefore it matters to them, you know, to, to same-sex couples, because they are still being denied something. Even if it's just a label, they are still being denied something. Um, so yes, absolutely, right? And And I think that was, one one of the motivations for them to say where well, civil partnership is good you know it's it's a step but the final frontier is to marriage because only then only when the labels are the same then we will have real equality so absolutely they were correct in in doing that and i think yes it took time and and i'm sorry that happened actually but again you know change takes time and yeah civil partnership was the bridge i think to bring us to that marriage thing that we now have. Um, as to whether gay couples are choosing marriage more than civil partnership, there are statistics on this. Now, I can't um, recall off the top of my head, but at the moment, I think marriage is slightly more popular than civil partnerships. Um, there are still same-sex couples who are going for civil partnership. So it wasn't as if same-sex marriage was brought in in 2013 and, and that's it you know, they really all hopped to marriage. So it does show that for some same-sex couples at least, they are making a considered choice now between civil partnership and marriage. Because now that both are on the table, they are now thinking, okay, how do I want to define my relationship? And what do I think is more suitable for me? Um, so yes, you know, and, and I think that needs to be looked at a bit more a bit more closely, actually. I didn't go into details with the statistics, um, but I did see it somewhere, the, the numbers. And I think, um, oh gosh, I don't want to say this because I might have gotten it the other way around. <laughs> marriage, marriage is more popular with, oh, I can't remember if it's either gay couples or lesbian couples and vice versa. Mm -hmm. You know, so one type of same-sex couples tend to prefer one or, and there must be reasons behind it, right? Mm -hmm. um, which I won't be able to, to try to guess what the reasons are unless I get it straight, which is which. Um, but yeah, at this moment, there, there's same-sex marriage is slightly more popular among the gay community. And if we break it down between lesbian couples and gay couples, one prefers one more than the other. Mm -hmm. Even that distinction is interesting. You know, you yeah. would think you know, w wonder why that would be. But yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. going to have to look into that, see if I can find some articles or whatever. Yeah. 
I think this this would boil down to, you know, identity and also LGBT identity, LGBT politics, mm-hmm. um, um, as to why one is more preferable than the other. Mm-hmm. Well, and when I say, you know, say differences, I mean they're, they're, they're small differences. It's not like ninety percent differences and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. And. Uh, kind of switching gears a little bit, but one of the, so unfortunately I would say, um, I, I think the, the most exposure I ever got to any type of feminist um, perspectives or theories would have been in one sociology class I took up at um, uh, SFU over, over here before yeah. coming to law. Um don't really remember a whole lot of that. So it's kind of a bit of a a wash, but, um, you know, it's very interesting. Um, well, and and not just family and child law, but other areas as well. Um, like when you look at land and equity, you, you see some of these, um, you see these issues pop up. Um, but as far as marriage is concerned, um, you know, women have had a pretty tough time in a lot of different ways for a long time, you know, like it's just, (laughs) so they'll do it. And, and marriage, at least historically in England was certainly rooted in, I don't really know how to describe it, but it's just not pleasant. You know, it was not a very, um, it wasn't a very good thing. Um, so now kind of fast forwarding to today, um, as far as uh, just as far as as, as marriage goes, because um, you often hear that it's a, a patriarch. Uh, I can never say this word. Patriarchal. Patriarchal. Boom. There we go. Patriarchal yeah. tool. Um, and certainly it does seem like um, you can find some examples of where that does seem to be um, <laughs> sad, sadly accurate. Um mm. But yeah, I'll just kind of throw that to you. Just um, as far as some feminist uh, approaches to marriage, um, I I am not a feminist legal scholar, so I won't pretend to be one. Um, the extent of you know um, my feminist sort of argu- theories or arguments is confined to family law and mm-hmm. and subject of marriage, motherhood, um, protection of women within a relationship of marriage. Um, you are correct to say that marriage is patriarchal, um, but is it, can it be any other, can it be any other way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we look at why marriage was brought brought into, in any society, just not, not even, you know, in, in England or, or the UK, in any society, when did we first ha- have or understand to be marriage, not talking about legal marriage, you know, but the idea that a woman would be with a man and they were recognized as a unit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect if you want to trace it, it, it goes back to, to the start of mankind, you know, to the start of mankind for a very simple reason of biology, biological differences between the sexes. Women are in general smaller than men, weaker than men, um, physically, physically. So, if you if you go back, you know, to historical primitive primitive man, right? You're living in a very dangerous world. Um, you know, dangers are you have to 
hunt for food, I, I don't know, grow, you know, grow your own food, etc. And that's the kind of thing where you need sort of the physical strength to do it. Now, women didn't have that, which meant that their ability to protect themselves, to get resources for themselves, for their survival. And more importantly, it was women who actually had the children. You know, so it wasn't just to keep themselves alive. It was also to keep their children alive. Their ability to do so is severely impaired. So what would make sense for women to do would be either to join, you know, a group, right? Um, and because early men also knew that if you were in a group that was better for protection, for survival of your group, which is where you start having tribes. Now, once you start having that, okay, it is normal. Again, you know, I think human nature, humans within the tribe to form certain relationships, right? To say, okay, you know, with this man, he could offer me some protection. He could protect me from the other men within these tribes. Because even if a tribe as a community, if you are a woman alone, men in the tribe could turn against you and you would be weaker. So if you had the allegiance of one of the men, then they could protect you against any possible threat. Now, I'm sure there was no label such as marriage or anything like that, or no you know, formal ceremony, but relationships form and other people within that tribes recognize that as, okay, this, this couple is a unit, you know, and they do things in a certain way. Um, and, and I think that cuts across, I won't say all tribe, uh, you know, all of humanity, but um, very much, you know, if you look at most societies, they are arranged in this manner. Now, I know there are certain tribes that are matriarchal in nature, etc. And it will be very interesting to see how those societies develop. But a lot of them, yes, it's it boiled down to an issue of sheer survival, right? Where a weaker a weaker member of the group of the community had to um, sort of ally themselves with someone who is stronger. Um, so that's where you have your first traces of the patriarchy. <laughs> that's where your first traces come when men realize that you know if they were able to offer something to a woman in terms of resources, in terms of protection they could get uh, a woman or women if, if that was the case. You could you have, have poly, polygamous tribes, right? Um, and then, of course, you know, you move on through the centuries. Um, then you have civilization. You, you have, you know, owning land. And if you talk about the context in England, um, at a certain point in time, right, you have what you call common law marriages or um, promises, now, these were not, you know, legalized or formalized. In it. There was no record of them. You know, it was purely dealt with by religious law, by the church. Um, and some churches kept records, some didn't. All, all you really needed was to sort of say your vows in front of a man of God. Um, so he didn't actually really have to be a real man of God. It could be like some defrocked yeah. priest. Who, who a, you know, if you were on the road, if you were traveling and you wanted to get married, um, you just found sort of someone calling themselves a man of God who married you. Um, now this you might think is fine because it's your freedom to define your relationships however that you want. Um, but then the government started getting a bit interested in it because it goes back down to money again and the patriarchy. If a, let's say a man was due to inherit you know, from his father rich you know, land owning estate and he went and got married to the wrong sort of woman 
now he could lose you know all that fortune if 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 she um if she let's say had children who were not his and stuff like that right things could get complicated vice versa if you had a daughter who you know um came whose father had a lot of assets etc he wanted to make sure that she married a man who was not a gold digger who was not marrying her to get a hands on her fortune and squander away what he has earned so allowing marriages to be defined and contracted by the parties themselves in in this sort of very loose informal manner um is not good in the eyes of the powers to be because then it starts to affect them starts to affect their assets etc and so that that was where parliament um in the 1700 something got interested in saying okay i don't think we can leave this in the hands of the church anymore um because it's just been too informal we need to legally regulate it um and it came from there right so yes it is it is patriarchal because it comes from the protection of property of wanting to protect your property and property in those days were in the hands of men go a bit more forward historically you have okay from the land holding and agricultural um generation right you go into industrialization um the move to big cities the move to labor intensive um industries the steel mills the mines etc again who works in these labor intensive industries men right it's, it's today we have a lot of equality i think because of modernization um keyboards you know you don't need physical strength for that right mm-hmm. a woman could do the job as easily and effectively as men but in early days of industrialization when it was still so labor intensive um the effective way it could be done is through male labor because they have the physical strength um so how do you harness male labor right you have to make sure that the men are ready to go to work and they are motivated to go to work which means keeping them in line you know um imbuing them with a sense of responsibility so if they get the idea is that if they are married if they have a family it tames them down you know they are less likely to be drinking um to to you know to be fighting with each other too much testosterone is not a good thing and all of that's not good for society so women were seen as the calming influence if we can get men to get married you know etc um so that was one right to for lack of a better term to get your another you know cog in the wheel because industrialization needed all these little workers um on the part of women on the other hand right women did not have economic power um, a lot of early industry other than things like sewing you know other than the sort of small cottage industry the heavy money making industry the printing press the steel mills these required male labor so men had the power to sort of economically uh lift uplift themselves women not so much so again the state sees that they have a problem right who's going to take care of these women right and their children because obviously they're going to have relationships and children so if there is no way that we can make men look after their women and the children that they have created that burden is going to fall on the state so we have to encourage this legal relationship because once that's there then that man has the legal obligation to take care of his wife if he dies she gets his property she's not on the street that sort of thing 
So again, it boils down to the, the patriarchy, right? We needed men to work. For true work, they could economically benefit themselves. Well, what happens to the to women and the children? If we don't look after them, then you know society falls apart because obviously you need children for the next generation of workers. So there is a vested interest in this. You know, when we say marriage protects women, yes, it does, but it it wasn't for altruistic reasons of the state. It wasn't in. You know, it was because the state recognized that if you did not protect women, it will have a knock-on effect on, on you know, the burden to, to society and hence the state as a whole. That was a really, really good explanation. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just taking my notes. I'm like, oh, this is great. Yeah. I no. mean, it, yeah, it's a, actually, it's not even feminist in nature. It's an it's a understanding of human nature. To me, it was, it was quite simple. It, it boiled down to human biology right? Early human beings, women were weaker. And that physical weakness has allowed men to gain, I would say, a head start, Mm -hmm. a head start of so many years that we are now trying to close the gap. Now that physical strength is in a lot of industries no longer, you know, needed um, that, that much. Of course, some industries you still need. Yeah. (laughs) That's, um, that's kind of how I looked at it. Um, because I also do a fair bit of like reading on my own about like I, I'm, I'm also interested in like just anthropological issues and whatnot. So it's, it's fun to, to read about that stuff. But that's kind of how I always looked at it was like, yeah, they just had such a head start because it, and it makes sense as to why that developed. It's just the problem now is that it's a problem now. So the value, you know, values have changed and just you know, the, the ability to acquire property, it's not just a male thing. Anybody can do it. You know, so the, the, the problem is, is that the, the values have changed, but the system itself is still, you know, rooted historically, you know, in that historical yeah. context. Yeah. Um, I think marriage now is, or no longer has the ability to be oppressive towards women, you know, not necessarily, but a lot of times it still is. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, not, not because of marriage itself. It still is. Again, it goes back to biology. Um, we look at things like the gender pay gap. You know, um, We look at things like career progression. And with women, a lot of times, if you compare a woman uh, with her male peer in the same industry with the same qualifications, there is a gender pay gap because... Um, some industries, of course, pay men more. I mean, this boils down to, I think, partially men asking for more. You don't ask, you don't get. And it's well known that men are more um, shameless, if you would, in negotiating their salary. They'll be like, give me this much, you know. Whereas women, we are socialized that it's not nice to demand things. It's not nice to, um, you know, so women are like, oh, hesitant to negotiate or they doubt themselves. So that's one of the factors. But another factor, of course, is also the time out that women take in um, having children, you know, and depending on how many children you have and um, the space between each child, a woman could leave the workforce for for a number of years, for a few years. Um, And especially if you look at the UK, well, I don't know about the whole of UK, certainly in England, 
And in the major cities um, in London, childcare is exorbitant. Nursery fees are, they're insane, okay? Coming from Singapore, I just, I, <laughs> I, and I don't know why. I mean, you just feed them and you pop them in, in like a cage, not a cage. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A playpen. <laughs> you know, one of those playpen things where they can't get out. How hard is it? You know, how much do you need to charge for that? Um, but apparently, they charge a lot. I mean, I look at my friends and, and amounts are just mind-boggling. So, unless, like, a woman has a really high-paying career that makes sense either for her to hire a nanny or or that she could still pay the nursery fees and still make a good number of women are saying it doesn't it doesn't make sense for me to go to work when I'm just breaking even by the time I pay the nursery I pay my commuting fees etc I'm working for nothing I'm working you know I'm, I'm not getting it's not a plus right I'm either just breaking even or maybe even taking a loss in fact um, and so the decision comes where they decide not to work because rather than putting your child in, you could be looking after your child and you would still financially be sort of the same, in the same position. Um, which in the long-term effect shows, shows the effect on their earning power and their earning capacity. Now, if you're married, that's fine, you know, because your husband, and if you break up, you get a share of the assets, right? You get a share of the assets. But... You get, you get a share of the assets and then what? You know, it will be spent on buying yourself a new house, for example. But what are you going to live on day to day? If you look at the decisions that we have these days, the courts have made it very clear that ongoing spousal maintenance, or I suppose what the North Americans call alimony, is really a thing of the past. Okay? They, they favor a clean break these days. So they want to divide the assets, Maybe, you know, if you can't go to work immediately, they might order maintenance for like a year or two just to get you back on your feet. And then it stops, right? And then it stops. So you're left there to fend for yourself with a massive gap on your CV, right? And in a job market that is not favorable to women, maybe not favorable to older women, and certainly not favorable to older women with gaps on their CV, you know? And not to mention, if at that time you still have children of school going age, you are limited in the types of jobs you have because, you know, you need to do the school run, etc. Which means, again, you know, your income earning capacity is limited because there are only certain jobs that you can do. So marriage being a protection, it's, it's a limited protection, if you ask me, you know. Um, it is still oppressive because the, their data is very clear on this, right? Women fare worse than men financially after a divorce. Don't let the MRAs fool you, okay? <laughs> the MRAs and the incel groups will be like, a man is nothing, he's paying out of his pocket, he's leaving <laughs> the trunk of his car, etc. That's true. You know, men feel the immediate pinch of a divorce because they lose the house, they, they have to pay maintenance for their kids. So they feel like, oh my God, you know, how at, at, they feel that impact. But in the long run, they make that money back. In fact, studies have shown that a man's income earning capacity increases after a divorce. <laughs> because, yeah, most of the time, it's the wife who has the primary care of the children. Meaning now, he can do overtime he can, without the care. 
Yeah. Whereas when he was married, he has to do his part of the childcare and the bedtimes and stuff like that. He could travel. He could take a consultancy job overseas. You don't have to worry about the children anymore. You know, for women, their financial um, goes down after after divorce. Um, they lose, and the years that they haven't worked, they haven't been building up a pension, mm-hmm. which is an asset in in your old age. Um, so yeah, so you know, this idea that marriage is a protection is, I think, over overemphasized or, or sort of not not overemphasized. Um, is is bigged up more than it is. You know, it is yes, it is a protection. You know, is it going to protect you from everything? It, no, it isn't. Is it going to make sure that you are enjoying the same standard of life that you enjoyed while you were married? No, it doesn't. You know, unless you're one of the lucky ones. Right. Um, even in the big money divorce, you know, in the big money cases, you look at wives who are walking away with like 32 million and you go, I mean, what is she complaining about? Yeah, but she's got 32 million and he's got 5 billion. <laughs> okay. So 32 million for her is a come down from where it was before when she was married to him. So to her, it is a drop in, in standard. Um, you, you know, so yeah, um, it, it is a protection, but n- not the cure all, you know, mm. that it is meant to be. But is it marriage that puts women in this position? No, I, to me, I think it's it's children. It's it's caring, caring duties, right? A woman who doesn't have children and who has forged ahead in her career. But for, I think, sexism in her industry could be on a par with a man. Okay, But once you factor in children and being a carer for the children, that's where you see women start kind of dropping out of the race. And we tell women, you know, don't, ha- well, in UK anyway, right? Don't, get, don't have children if you don't ha- get married um, because unless you're planning on continuing working, if, you, if you're going to stop working and be a stay-at-home mom, make sure you get married because if something goes south, you get protection. Um, and that's true, okay, but then it gets women to take on that caring duties, secure in the knowledge that, oh, I'm married, I'll be protected. And it's a very rude shock when they know that protection is very limited. It doesn't ensure that you are on par Hmm. I, I want to back you up because you mentioned something that I, I kind of picked up on um, w- regarding um, uh, uh, well alimony, uh, so spousal yeah. support. Um, yeah. That the courts favor a clean break. So the idea yeah. that's kind of falling out of favor. Um, what's the justification on that? Because I mean, just to me. Um, Putting law aside, putting, you know, if you just want to look at it just from a, an ethical or, or moral perspective, I don't know. To me, I, I kind of have a tough time with that. Like, I obviously understand that on the one hand, it would be really, you know, it, it'd be kind of crappy to be paying, you know, money to someone that you're not in a relationship with, particularly mm-hmm. if it ends poorly and you actually despise that person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that that's a tough thing. Oh, they'll turn you bitter. Oh yeah. You know, that that's something that would be, you know, that wouldn't feel great. But on the other hand, it does seem more wrong 
to have someone just flapping in the breeze and, and just yeah. kind of left like that. So what, what's the justification um, from the courts? Well, well, the justification is, it's not new, actually. The courts have an obligation to consider whether they are able to achieve a clean break. And that's been in the legislation for years. Um, you know, so they have to consider it. And the, the approach now is that the courts will are not in favour of ordering ongoing maintenance. This is in line with legislation telling them to try and achieve a clean break, um, if not immediate, at least a clean break in time to come. Obviously, you know, as you said, you can't leave someone flapping in the wind. So there, there needs to be like a transition period to help them get back on their feet. Um, you know, if they are children, for the children to reach an age where it's actually realistic to expect them to go to work, to brush up on their CV, you know, retrain, do something, right? Um, so that's fine. You know, you could have spousal payment for like a, a couple of years to get them back. But this idea that, it, you know, that you receive maintenance for the rest of your life or at least until you're remarried, that's really confined to a thing in the past now. Um, so the courts, the justification for this is that it is not fair to expect one person to support someone else for the rest of their life when legally, you know, their obligations between each other have ended. Um, we should always, you know, encourage people to be self-sufficient. If you can work, you should work, um, you know, in, in whatever capacity that you can. Um, and of course, if like, you know, if there needs to be a transition period, then so, so be it, you know, like to retrain, et cetera. But if you can work, then you should work. Um, and yeah. The only times now that I would see, um, that I would think, okay, uh, and bear in mind, you know, financial provisions in the UK is all, in England and Wales is discretionary. So there's no hard and fast rule to say, you know, the approach is that they're not in favor of it. That doesn't mean they'll never do it, you know, because there might be the exceptional case. But the direction that I see the courts going in now with regards to sort of ongoing um, maintenance I think it's really unlikely unless it's like an elderly couple who are divorcing at a very old age in life and the woman has just been like a, a, you know, a stay-at-home um, wife all these years and she's at an age where like in her 60s where it's you can't expect her to retrain. Yeah. She's not yeah. going to get any employment. Yeah, not practical. And in that sense, yes, I think you would be able to get the ongoing payment which probably won't last for very long if it's a late in life marriage, you know, a late in life divorce. Yeah. I mean, yeah. See, yeah. Yeah. Gives you a lot to think about. Cause it, it is, yeah. um, I, I can see the justification on both sides. It's just, um, yeah. but then again, that, that is the, the nice thing about the, the UK when it comes to financial provisions that the courts do have a pretty tremendous amount of discretion, oh, big, yeah. you know, and, and I think that's a good thing because, you know, cause generally too much discretion might not be a good thing. Like if you look at it from a criminal perspective, certainly not. Yeah. But in a situation like this, where it's family related or child related, just because the, it's so subjective and relationships and family units are so different, they're so unique. Yeah. So you do have to have the ability to, you know, f find a, a, you know, the, the right conclusion to it. So yeah. I 100% agree, you know, um, I, oh, 
The trouble with it is, I think it makes it difficult for lawyers to be able to advise, um, to predict anything. It's always an issue of, well, we can argue this, we can argue that. This is the direction they are going in, but I can't guarantee you that it will be the direction they take for you, but we can certainly make a strong argument for this and that. Um, and as, if you're the client, it, it just leaves you in a position like, I just want to know where I stand financially, you know? Um, so yeah, on the one hand, it's good. If you do have to go to court, you certainly hope that the judge will be willing to look into the nuances of what happened in your life and make the decision that's fair. Um, but you also want some kind of certainty to think, okay, do I want to go to court or do I want to negotiate something? Mm. And you can't negotiate unless you can't, you have a pretty good idea of how it's going to go in court, which if there's discretion, you can't. Right. And um, we're doing pretty good on time, but a um, yeah. couple of the things that I, I really want to get to. Um, yeah. So the, so the two, so I got uh, cohabitation. We'll save that one for, we'll, we'll go with that one second. Um, sure. But the, the new uh, statute, you, you did mention it uh, very briefly earlier, but I definitely want to go into that because it's, it's pretty uh, pretty big deal when that one comes into effect. So the uh, oh, it's divorce. one of the biggest biggest yeah. um, changes developments in family law in decades. Mm -hmm. And that would be the uh, Divorce Dissolution and Separation Act, um, and that's coming into effect at, in the at the end uh, of this year. Yeah, hopefully by autumn this year, okay. uh, maybe sooner, I guess. All right. And um, so I don't know a whole lot uh, about this. So because I, um, I, you know, I should be researching stuff because yeah. I'm going to be a lawyer. But uh, yeah, whatever. That's that's why I do this podcast so I can learn like this. And <laughs> um, but one of the biggest changes with that statute is introducing no fault divorce. Um, yes. So, yeah, if you could just explain what that is and then um, we'll, we'll kind of yeah, we'll just kind of go through that statute a little bit. Introduce, yeah, it introduces no-fault divorce. Well, I won't say it introduces, it It actually creates no-fault divorce. If if you're very technical about it, the current law on divorce, um, which has been in place since 1973, is, is technically no-fault because there's only one ground for divorce, which is the irretrievable breakdown of marriage, which is entirely <clears throat> neutral. Marriage has broken down irretrievably, doesn't point fingers at anyone. Mm -hmm. So we actually have no fault divorce. You know, if, if you're looking at it from a very superficial, superficial technical uh, point of view. Um, however, of course, if you look a bit deeper, our current law on divorce under the MCA Matrimonial Causes Act 1973 um, is, 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 is cheating, I think, okay? It's, it's no fault divorce in, you know, right up front by saying, right, the only ground to end a marriage is irretrievable breakdown of marriage. But then it says, in order to evidence this ground, you have to establish one out of five uh, possible divorce facts. And three out of the five divorce facts are fault-based. So you have adultery, you have, you know, behavior that's not reasonable to live with, and you have desertion. So all of these involve an element of finger pointing, like you cheated on me, <laughs> you behaved in such a way, you know, you deserted me. So although on paper, there is no fault divorce, in reality, um, divorce is based on fault. 
Now, there are two more you know, divorce facts which are completely neutral, which is the two-year separation with consent and the five-year separation. The problem is, if you want to divorce no fault, you have to separate and wait a period of time. Now, a lot of people don't want that. They, they, you know, they want out now. And so if you want out now, you have to find some way to you know, craft your petition so that it falls under one of the three finger-pointing facts, fault facts. So the reality is, you know, unless a couple has the ability and the patience to separate, um, a lot of times it's a financial reason as well, you know, having to rent another place and really, um, then they are going to want their divorce now, right? Either because they have a new relationship, whatever, okay? They want the financial things to be done, the house to be sold. They are going to have to find some kind of fault as their evidence, even if it means having to exaggerate, um, having to be a bit creative on the facts, you know? Um, and it's no surprise that the second fact, which is the behavior that's not reasonable to live with, is the most popular cited fact for divorce. <laughs> because it's so sort of broad that, you know, you could interpret the behavior, you could exaggerate the behavior. Dare I say, you could make up some uh, incidences of behavior even. Adultery, you have to prove that they had sex with someone else, which, you know, you might have phone calls or texts, but how do you prove that sex actually happened? Right? It's a bit difficult. Desertion, they have to have left you for a period of time. So if they have left you for that period of time, you could separate anyway, I guess. You know. So that, these, that leaves us with behavior. So that's the most popular one. And that's also the one that you know, is, is the most acrimonious because you're actually sort of dissecting your whole relationship, putting it there on paper. Okay, you did this, you did this, you behaved like that. And the result is, it's not reasonable to expect me to live with you anymore. Now you can imagine that that's really painful, right? It's, it's like raking over. Um, so yeah, you know, that there used to be fault in divorce, in the facts, and the new law that comes in basically does away with any of this. All you need to do is to submit a statement that your marriage has broken down irretrievably. You don't have to evidence it with any fact. Yeah, I remember there was this one, um, like, uh, talking about um, intolerability. Um, I can't remember the actual case that it, like the, the name of the case, but um, just to kind of give a little more information as to like what that actually means. Um, the, the, there's a really good case of uh, Ash and Ash. And yeah. um, it kind of gave a little bit of a, a definition to that. So I'll just read that out. And then there was a little funny thing. But um, yeah. in, in that case, it was you have to consider not only the behavior of the respondent as alleged and established in evidence, but the character, personality, disposition, mm -hmm. and behavior of the petitioner. Uh, the general question may be expanded. Uh, thus, can this petitioner with his or her character and personality, with his or her faults and other attributes, good and bad, and having mm -hmm. regard to his or her behavior during the marriage reasonably be expected to live with this respondent. So yeah. I quite liked that one because it's pretty, it's pretty in-depth. And yeah. I, I remember there was this one case that really killed me because it was so funny where the, the, so the couple, they were both like pretty bad. Like they, 
both had like substance abuse issues and oh, yeah, yeah. like they, and like they were pretty equally bad and i remember the the i can't remember the exact comment but the judge basically said like you guys are actually perfect for each other because you both <laughs> suck so much <laughs> yeah yeah oh I remember that case. I think it was alcoholism, both. Yeah, both parts. I think, yeah. yeah alcoholism. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, in that, that case, well, the name escapes me now, but the judge basically said, yes, you know, if you're, you drink and you drink and both of you drink, you know, to the same level and descend to that same level of drunken behavior, <sighs> then you have to put up with each other because neither, you know, neither one of you are, are behaving in a way that's not reasonable because you do it yourself. Yeah. And, um, when, so with the, with the new statute then, um, that essentially, will it just eliminate the, the five yeah. criteria? Like they're just going to repeal yeah. that outright? Yeah. Yeah. No more five criteria. Um, no more five facts. Okay. There's still yes. a ground and the ground is irretrievable breakdown of marriage. So all you need to do is to file a statement saying the marriage has broken down irretrievably. Um, and, and you, yeah, so you file that, and then and then it becomes a process. Then they'll write to the other party, and you know, um, yeah, it will be done. It 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 literally will become a administrative, more or less, you know, an administrative process, right? It's um, divorce on demand, as you as you call it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, and. Um... I guess there's like, cause I remember when, when we were, this is like a very common, like essay debate. Oh, yeah, topic. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess it's like a long time coming for this development, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. It's been a long time coming in the sense that it's been, it's been a long time debate, you know, um, there's, mm -hmm. it's been a long time asking, you know, there've been different groups, interest groups, MPs asking for this, agitating for this, um, I mean, it boils back down to the same debate, right? Um, there's a very good, you know, um, article by Ezra Hassan called Setting a Standard or Reflecting the Reality. And, and he goes into the objectives. You know, he says, well, you can never have a good divorce law until you settle on what your objectives of the law should be. And if you have mixed objectives, then the law is going to come out, you know, mixed, right? Because you don't know who you're trying to satisfy. Um and the debate has always been about two opposing groups. On the one hand, you have sort of the pragmatic realist and the pragmatic realists are like, look, if people don't want to be in a marriage, there's no point keeping them in the marriage. Let them end it and move on. Keep it simple and not, you know, find, there's no reason why we need to find out why somebody else's marriage has broken down and have them justify to the legal system why their marriage has broken down. All we need to know is it's not working and they want out. And so, yes, we know we don't want to keep people unhappy. That's slavery, you know. <laughs> well, not slavery exactly, but some, some kind of oppression or torture, <laughs> right? Um, so why, why should you have to justify yourself to the legal system? You might have to justify yourself to yourself. What are your real reasons <laughs> for leaving marriage? But why should you have to justify it to the legal system? So... You know, if a marriage is broken down, let it end. But then, on the other hand, you have the conservative religious groups which are saying, no, marriage means something, right? You don't just decide that it's no longer working. You, you've taken vows, you know, you've signed a contract, right? 
And a contract has to mean there has to be some force behind it. If you wanted to break a contract of sale, you would have to justify yourself to the court why this term of contract has been broken. So why should it be any different for marriage? Um, you know, if we allow people to just decide that they could have a divorce and the process is simple, it doesn't require any reflection on their part, people just get divorced in haste. Um, they, they won't consider it, okay? And I think there's merit to that as well. Okay, there's merit to that as well. Um, so here we have two very, to me, very valid points of view, but they are at opposing ends to each other. Um, so how do we square this? You know, I, I, we, it can't be squared. All I can say is, yes, the pragmatic realists have won. They, they have won, you know, with this act. I suppose spurred on by the case of Owens and Owens, um, the case of Owens and Owens, I think, really brought the unfairness of, um, or the possible unfairness, right? The thing with divorce laws is that it doesn't give you a problem until it does, which is what happened in the case of Owens and Owens. Thousands and thousands of people are getting divorced every year on demand in the sense that they have to say, they have to prove a fact. They choose the fact of behavior, they make up or they actually say what behaviors happen and they get the divorce. No one questions it. Owens and Owens hit the speed bump because in this case, Mr. Owens decided to defend the petition. And when he defended the petition, the case now comes under scrutiny in court where the court actually has to go through the facts to see whether the ground has been made out. And in that particular case, they found that the ground has not been made, not the ground, see, I fall into the trap. The fact has not been made out. Thousands of petitions before that may, may have been equally flimsy or equally weak. It's just that the respondent in those cases maybe rolled over and said, oh, well, I can't be bothered. I want to get divorced too. So, you know, and so the facts were not questioned. The facts were not dissected or examined. But in this case, Mr. Owens was the one in the God knows how many hundreds of thousands that decided to defend. Mm -hmm. And when he defended, that put the facts under scrutiny. And to the judges, they said, well, these facts, are these incidences that Mrs. Owens has described is not sufficient to make up the fact that he behaved in a way that she could not reasonably be expected to live with him. And so this, I think this shocked a lot of people as well because divorce has been so run of the mill for so many decades now that a lot of people think that divorce is actually on demand. Mm -hmm. All I have to do is to say how bad they are and therefore the courts will say, yes, it's not reasonable for me to live with them and that's it because nobody defends. Very few people defend. Um, and so when, they, when you know, it hit the papers and when people realized that, oh my God, if I wanted to get divorced and if the other person decided to defend and the court actually looked at the incidences that I've described, it is open to the courts to decide that these incidences are actually quite normal in any marriage. Even though they might not seem normal to me, you know, it might be terrible to me, but the court might say, you know, from an objective point of view, you should be able to live with this. Now that's terrifying. <laughs> Okay, that's terrifying. So they realized, no, it's actually not divorce on demand. It seemed that way just simply because people don't contest it. Mm 
Um, and so I think this renewed, renewed the debate, you know, of no fault divorce. Because if you look at family law, this debate has been since the 90s, you had the Family Law Act that failed. And then 2015, 14, the debate again, and then fizzled out, kind of no progress was made. And then Owens and Owens, I think, just gave it the final push um, over the line and say, yeah, you know what, it's about time. That was in 2018, that case, right? That was 2018, yeah. yeah. And, and I can't remember, but why did he um, contest it? Was it a money issue? No, I mean, it's not money issue because- ego issue. This, this is, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the divorce, right? Financial provisions comes after the divorce. Hmm. Um, I don't know why he contested it. Do you want his version or do you want the cynical? <laughs> the cynical one is way more fun. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, his, his reason is he didn't feel, he felt that the marriage could still be saved. And he felt that, yeah, he, he said he felt that there were still many more years that they could live together through their old age. Um, so that, that was his official version of it. You know, he said yeah. he's he, he's old school. This is the way he behaves, you know. Um, but he didn't think that it was that bad and he thought the marriage could still be saved. So that's his version. The cynical um, version, and I hope I'm not sued, the cynical version is, um, I think maybe he wanted, I don't know, maybe he wanted to buy time, mm -hmm. right? If he dragged this out long enough, now in the end she divorced him. Uh, she because they had been living apart. By the time this case went up to the Supreme Court and was done and dusted, they had been living in. She was living in the guest house basically. Mm. Um, <laughs> it it was almost like four years and nine months. So just another few so close, months. Yeah. Yeah. In a few months' time, whether he liked it or not, she would be able to use the five years separation fact, and that he can't contest that. Yeah. Right. He can't that. So she she would get a divorce either way. Um, but it had bought him almost five years of time. At which point, how much of his assets would he have hidden? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, and the thing that's very odd about this case, because I know, like, you know, it's so funny. Like, lost. He might just be an old man who loves his wife. Yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah. That's true. But but I know, no, like. No, listen. Don't listen to a cynical old cow like me. <laughs> but, you know, when when a bunch of, and you would know this too, like when a bunch of law students get together, we all like to, you know, we, we often talk about this stuff and the, the debates get interesting and generally humorous. But, you know, it, it does point out a really strange concept, um, which you, you pointed out, which is also like, it's odd for, like someone, your partner wants a divorce and you go, no, like, we're just going to, we're going to ride it out. And it's like, yeah. you understand that one person just doesn't want to be in this and you're, you're comfortable or, or you're okay with at least just being like, no, 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 like, it's fine. We'll, we'll just do it. And it's like, well, yeah. what does that say about you? You know, there's a strange, you know. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. But and I also get that, you know, if one person has just said, I'm putting my tools down, that's it, then yeah, it's not going to work, you know. But I also think, on the other hand, is it right that someone just one day says, 
you know, that you're going along and you think everything is fine or whatever. And someone just says, you know what, it's not working for me, I want out. And you have no chance to defend yourself or even to say, okay, what can I do to change? Or, you know, let's try and work this out somehow. I mean, you have no right of reply. I mean, imagine what that would do to someone psychologically. I mean, the lack of closure, the complete lack of closure. I, com- I get that nobody should be forced to stay in a relationship against their will. And you don't have to give any, if it's not working for you, you should go. Um, I, get, I, I get that, okay. But I'm also thinking, putting myself in the shoes of the person who, for lack of a better word, has been blindsided. Mm-hmm. You know, what does this do to them? You know, that somebody just said, it's the equivalent of someone just blocking you. You, know, you don't have the right to reply. Um, and, and that could be awful. Okay, now I'm not talking about people who have had problems, you know, who, where the relationship has been sort of rocky and they've been having problems and you can't say you didn't see this coming, you know. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, most divorces you or breakup of any relationship, you do see it coming. Mm-hmm. But there are some cases where someone is blindsided, completely blindsided. Well, and, and there are times where people, because I always kind of laugh when I when I hear people say, well, I, I'm still a bit young for people to be uh, getting divorced, like people I know, but, but breakups, you know, I always do yeah. kind of chuckle when I hear them say like, oh, I had no idea this was coming. And I'm like, okay, you just weren't looking, you know, you just were, yeah, you, just too, you, you have to pay more attention. But I will say, <laughs> that being said, <laughs> There certainly are times, not many, but there definitely are times where, man, someone just, that's it. They just take off without any, without yeah. any type of knowledge to the other person, you know? So it, you know, it does happen. Yeah. You know, it does happen. And it, it, it might be nothing to do with the, the uh, you know, sometimes some people are just not able to be in a relationship. Literally, it's not you. It's really yeah. <laughs> But if that's the case, you know, at least stay behind to explain that. At least tell the other person why, you know, you cannot be in a relationship because you're too psychologically screwed up or whatever. Um, You don't just go along, everything's fine. And then one day you just decide, okay, it's not working for you. So, and it's also dangerous in the sense like, you know, you have people who suffer midlife crisis and they're not in their right mind at that time when they're making that decision. Um, men, especially, I think, you know, at a certain age, usually around the 40s, they sort of look around them and go, is this it? Is this all that it is? Right? And that's the time where, in your 40s, where, you know, life is at its most stressful. You're building halfway through your career. You've, you're at the peak of your income earning capacity. You've got bills to pay. Your kids are not old enough, you know, so they're still in the house, I guess. Um, you might not be able to have that much time you have with your spouse. And, you know, men, they look around and they're like, is, there, is this all that it is? It's like, I'm never going to, like, win the, win the NBA or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever fantasies that they have. Um, and that is the time where their head could be turned by someone younger at work, someone a little bit more um, exotic, you know, in the sense that they're not just talking to you about the kids, about the bills, something different, right? And they fancy themselves in love, you know? 
because it's a very strong emotional response, right? Attachment response. It's really an emotional breakdown. It's a questioning of your life, right? We all have that at certain points, you know, certain points. In a, but it manifests itself at dissatisfaction in their relationship. Mm -hmm. at, um, and a lot of times it passes. It passes, right? I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's correct to cheat on your spouse or whatever. It's not. But given time, you know, these men realize, like, you know, I'm not throwing away my whole family for this. I'm not, you know, what am I doing? You know, I'm 40 something. With it. I, you know, it's just a fantasy. Keep it as that or, or whatever. Um, and they come to their senses and they realize, you know, I could have lost everything for just trying to. Um, but now that, you know, you have this no-fault divorce and, you know, somebody might just say, oh, you know, it's not working for me. Whereas previously, if you actually had to justify your grounds, you know, putting things on paper, you can look at it and you go, is this really what it is? Or is it some other emotional issue that is leading me to this? At least it gives you that pause where, where you look at what's written down, what you have written down, you take stock of your relationship while you're running through your mind for the incidences of mm -hmm. so-called terrible behavior, you reflect and you go, okay, you know, but I said this as well or whatever. Yeah. Right. So it might save a few marriages. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I think no fault will help some people, mm -hmm. but it will also be dangerous in, in some sense. Um, it will also be dangerous because I do think some people might use it Impulsively. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, that's the thing I love about law is that man, there is no end to the to the debate because there there you can find validity on both sides. You know, yeah. it is one of those things where you know it's just a matter oh. of playing the odds a bit too, and just hoping that the decisions or, or the laws that are made are are the right ones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. There's been research from America um, because they have had decades of no-fault divorce. Oh, they and, love it. They love yeah, it. <laughs> and they've had, they're, they're very mixed, um, mixed, I think, research and mixed opinion on this. Hmm. Um, some American academics blame no-fault divorce for the breakdown of the American family and the rise in single motherhood and et cetera. Um, but there was no denying that in America, at least, when they introduced no-fault divorce, divorce rates spiked through the roof, mm -hmm. right? So it seemed, if you just take a very superficial sort of non-critical um, analysis, if divorce is easier, more people will get divorced. Now, I'm sure there are more nuances than that, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, correlation doesn't mean causation. Mm -hmm. um, but there is undeniable data that yes, where divorce is easier, you do have a... Now, why? Okay, why there is a spike? I'm not sure. It may be that people finally realize, okay, you know, it's easier for me to escape an abusive spouse. Mm -hmm. If I had to go through a whole process and they could use it as a form of control against me by defending the petition, not because they want to save the marriage, but as a form of exerting more control, What's the point? You know, I don't have the money to go to court, etc. So they might not, but now that it's easy, they might finally have the, the guts to do it. Um, you could have people who are clinging on to a, a broken marriage for pride because they want to get divorced on their own terms. 
And now that divorce is no fault in the administrative process, they're like, yay, you know, I don't mind, right? Um, so there, there could be many reasons, you know, completely innocent reasons why there was a spike. These marriages are broken already. It's just now there's reason to be divorced. So it's not as easy as saying, well, divorce is easy. More people would want to divorce. I think that's silly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why would people just want to divorce if there's no good reason? Just because it's easy, you know? No. Um, so there must have been underlying reasons there that now that divorce is easy, it gives them the push to do so. So that could account for the spike. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be other reasons, but this is the most obvious one that I can think of. Um, it just I'm just looking at my own circle as well. You know, if you think about it, like um, people that, I mean, my own partner, like, you know, was prepared. He didn't have to do so in the end, but he was entirely prepared to defend his divorce application with his ex-wife um, even though the marriage had broken down for like years, they had been living apart for years. Um, he was completely prepared to defend it should she apply on behavior, alleging behavior on his part. Because to him, there was behavior on her part as well. So to make it look like it was him, he wasn't going to stand for that. And and I'm like, at the end of the day, you just who is going to read into this? Who is going to look? And he, you know, no one's going to look. You get your divorce and it's done. No, no, it's it's a mat- it's a matter of psychological, you know, you're not going to be able to point a finger at me when there were things on your side. Um my my personal trainer, who's who's a good friend of mine, he's been separated since like 2017, and he does not want, you know, I was like, why don't you just get it done? You know. If you got hit by a car, she'll inherit it. She'll inherit all your exercise equipment. Um, and, and he said, no, she wanted the divorce. Let her petition for it. You know, I'm not going to petition. So you see, just even the word petitioner carries so much of a psychological baggage for someone, right? It wasn't me who wanted the marriage to end. Therefore, it will not be me who goes to the court asking for it to end. See, even that was a psychological step. So it's like you would rather just live in limbo. Like if she doesn't take a step, you would, and he's like, yeah, she wants it, she does it. And and if she dares allege behavior in ground, I'm going to defend. With what? With what money? Why? Again, you know, psychological. Um, But in the end, she did do it and she alleged separation, which was neutral. And he was like, okay, that's fine. That's fair. And think he signed the papers yeah just after christmas so right about now i guess that's a good christmas gift <laughs> I, yeah and i was like <laughs> every year since 2017 i've been like so what's going on and he's like mm, you know haven't heard from her don't care doesn't matter doesn't bother me um but just think about it two two men you know that i know in my immediate circle that i see my, my own partner my personal friend um you know, they're not actually devastated about the divorce. It's happened, whatever, you know, fine, it sucks, right? But they are going to be very particular about the way in which the divorce is conducted. So it will be on their terms. You know, there's there's, there's going to be no alleging of fault, you know, etc. And And I guess for people in this position, life will be a lot easier. Well, you know, it, it's funny because I know, like, obviously, it, it's easy to to laugh at that type of stuff because th- there is humor in it, of course. 
But, you, have to. you know, the, the other thing, too, that I think people are very quick to forget is that the, you know, a, a divorce or a relationship, you know, a marriage and, and a divorce, those are big events. Those are not small things. And, mm-hmm. you know, that becomes part of your story. That becomes part of your life story. Yeah. And so it may seem from someone on the outside, like, you know, why contest it? Like, what does it matter? Just go through with it. Yeah. But it does matter. It's very, you know, it really does matter, you know. It really does matter, yeah. Um, I mean, the difference between, like, you could just break up in a relationship and once there's a divorce, I think what people need to understand is when something has legal force behind it, it matters, if you talk about terms of emotional pain, I would say getting a divorce and breaking up like a long-term relationship is the same emotional pain. You could have children in a long-term, you could have children in a marriage, you could have been in a relationship for 20 years and break up, you know, just because it's not legal doesn't mean the pain, the emotional trauma is any less. But when you use legal words, something that has legal force, I mean, you know, words have meaning, right? Legal words have meaning. And that meaning carries a lot of psychological um, force, psychological baggage. So you're right, you know, ultimately the pain might still be there, but a breakup is just a breakup. But if it's a divorce, I want to, you know, it has some kind of force to me. And no matter how you tell them that really, you know, no one, it's not public, right? You know, no one's going to read it. No one's going to care. Everyone's getting divorced. No, no one can... No, you know, it's, it's on paper. Therefore, it has to be in a way that I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah, you know, that's why it's, it, it will be interesting to see how, um, particularly because of COVID too. So, I, I, you know, that affects, you know, court and, and well, I guess they're, I, yeah, I don't even really know how the courts are even handling this, but yeah, it'll be interesting when, when that statute comes into effect, like what the, uh, I, you know, it'd be so, I don't know if we can rely on the data. Let's say they bring in the law, like, before autumn of this year, right? So let's say somewhere in April or whatever. And lo and behold, you do see a spike in divorce rates. Are we going to immediately correlate that to the change in the law and say that the spike was caused by the reform of the law? Or are we going to take into account the effect of COVID? Because I can see that a lot of marriages will break down because of the, you know, being forced, you know, living in this no escape. There's no escape. <laughs> Any kind of wrongdoing just becomes so magnified because there's no escape from it. That abuse becomes worse during lockdown because you're stuck at home and, you know, um, and people who have previously been able to live with their spouse because they went to work they had interaction outside now suddenly realize you know i don't have anything to say to them and so i think somewhere around maybe autumn this year is going to be prime divorce time because people have just had so much you know that lockdown they've had the time to think to reflect on their relationship or to just say i've had enough you know i've had enough so how much of that spike is actually due to the effect of covid lockdown and how much is it due to the law just being made easier? You know, um, we're never going to have like a clear picture, I think, to trust that data if that if it does happen, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If if we do see a spike, we might not. Who knows? 
Yeah. Yeah. I know it's a, well, you know, and it's all, you know, you pointed out too, which is, it could just be as simple as um, there's a lot of people who are married who probably shouldn't be. And so if it's easy to get divorced, they'll just do it. Well, that's not a bad thing. That's just people should be a little more careful who they marry, but whatever. (laughs) That's your choice. You know, it's still your choice. I think it's a bad thing when there are children involved though. Mm -hmm. When there are children involved, because it's children who suffer with a divorce. And as much as we always say, it's better to have a divorce than have children live in a relation, in a toxic, you know, Mm -hmm. relationship where their parents' relationship is terrible. They're at each other's throats all the time, where there's abuse going on. Um, that is much more traumatic to children than a trauma. And I completely get that. But to say that a divorce will be better for the children, I don't think so. I think children do lose out in divorce. Um, they lose out on a stable home for one, you know, and um, very often if the division of assets, if, you know, there's not enough um, assets, they, they might have to downgrade, you know, the house might be sold and you have to buy a property that's maybe not as big in, in maybe not as nice an area, they might have to change schools. All of these are very traumatic, you know, to children because it disrupts their consistency of their lives. Um, or even if one parent stays in the house with the children, the other parent goes somewhere else, they might be renting like an apartment and not have enough room for their kids to come visit. Um, in which case, the kids might not want to go there because th- there's no space and they lose that um, relationship with the other parent. Um, the other parent forms a relationship, becomes a bit more distant, you know, um, all kinds of things. And even today where I say this actually, and I'm in a minority with this because a lot of people say to me, but Vicky, these days, you know, there's 50-50 custody, you know, um, and so there's no reason why there needs to be any time. And I say, but think about it. Is that good for the children? Now, some children, yes, but a lot of children would hate being bounced up and down 50-50. They don't want to like half the week have a different bedroom. You know, um, they, they don't want to have like, if their friends are from one school and in one area, like they hang out like at a town center and they don't want the other half of the week to be at the other end of town where they can't see their friends if, you know, if they can't drive and or have independence. Um, they don't want to say no to a birthday party this weekend because they're supposed to be spending time at the other parent's place and the other parent has activities planned for them. Kids don't want that. You know, I, I remember this particular case. Um, it was really weird. Like, I was once caught, like, in a snowstorm and all the trains were not running to Guildford. And this woman was caught at a train next as well. And she needed to go to Guildford for a um, a child arrangement order, what they call a custody hearing. <laughs> and so it's like, she had no choice. We got an Uber and she said, well, if you're going to Guildford, I'll drop you off in the Uber. Um, so it's really kind. I said, I'll give her some money for that. So as we went, she found out I was a family law um, lecturer and she said, well, you know, she's going for a custody hearing. <laughs> Do I have any tips? Um, and I said, well, you know, be very factual. Don't be emotional. Like everything that you are saying related to how it benefits the child's welfare. And, um, and, and this was not a first hearing. So they were going back to modify, you know, the, the original order. So it was about now that the child was slightly older, it's about how to spend holidays and something like that. Cause I think her ex-husband had moved. And I think it came down to the holidays would be 50, 50. So 
the child would spend, or at least what she was asking, the child would spend Christmas Eve with her and Christmas Day morning. And then Christmas Day afternoon, he would go over to his dad's place and spend Boxing Day there and um, Boxing Day to New Year's Eve or something like that. Now, this might seem fair, okay? That's not bad. Yeah, that's not bad. But we are looking at it from an adult's point of view, Mm. which means neither of us loses out and each of us get our special Kodak moment. So I get the Christmas Eve waiting for (laughs) and you get like the Christmas Day afternoon lunch and everything, right? But think about it from a child's point of view. Now, some children might love it, okay? (laughs) Double presents. Yeah. (laughs) But some children are going to hate it because can you imagine Christmas morning, you've got your presents, you want to open it up, you want to have your milk and cookies and play with your gifts. You don't want to be packed up, right? Put in a car and now go to somewhere else. You know, I'm just thinking, you know, I spend Christmas, like you wake up, have a lie-in and then, you know, you eat and then by four o'clock, you're kind of drunk (laughs) and full and you're like, I just want to go to sleep. You know, I the, if you somebody tried to pack me up and put me in a car and say, hey, there's Christmas somewhere else. You're going to have new presents. I'll be like, just leave yeah, me. I'm good. <laughs> and I was like, is this really good for a child? You know, I know you want your special moments and everything, but a child could have two presents and deliver the presents to the house. To me, this was selfish. It was each of their parents wanting time with the child. But how does the child want to spend their time? So you've literally divided up their Christmas into two, mm-hmm. you know, and instead of Christmas being sort of a relaxing time for the child to kind of, it becomes an activity packed. It's not a holiday. It's activities. It's, it's spending time here doing this. It's obligations. Mm-hmm. So to me, does a divorce, you know, is it good for children? I, children lose out in some way. Yeah, no just, matter what. Yeah, no matter what. It's just whether they lose out more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And, and, and that, you know, really highlights, um, well, and, and that's good. Like in child law, we, we definitely talk a lot about that type of stuff, but the, the per, you know, perspective, you know, perspective is, is everything when it comes to making a decision. And that's true because, you know, you, you think about it from, you know, an adult's perspective who we really yeah. don't care. You know, it's like, you know, we don't care about Christmas. Like not, you know, there's no, like, there's no, the magic of Christmas is gone. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I think when you're an adult, when you're an adult and you have children, like Christmas is exciting because it you see it through your children's eyes. Mm-hmm. If your children is excited and they're happy, you're happy. So each parent wants a piece of that, right? Each parent wants to be responsible. Like I'm the one making my child happy and my child's laughing you know, and, and so therefore that makes me feel good. But I'm just thinking for the child, it, it just seems like trying to please two sides. It becomes overwhelming for the child. It just becomes really overwhelming. So much activity, so much food. And depending on how old the child is, they might just have a meltdown just because to overstipulation, mm-hmm. you know, you've got all these presents here and then you go somewhere, all these presents and you're like, ah, where do I start? Um, and, I, and when you're older, when you're a teenager, you don't want to be bouncing up and down, you know, as a teenager, teenagers like Christmas, you just, you just want to eat and like watch lousy TV. Well, much as I did on Christmas. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think children always lose out in divorce. Um, it's just whether they lose out more or less, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course there's the aftermath of divorce as well. Um, one of the parents have a new relationship 
and they have to now navigate a new adult in their lives. They never asked for this adult in their lives. It's not their choice, right? And this new adult might have children of their own that's not related to you at all, but you expected there's some kind of relationship, maybe even share your house with them. You're not given a choice in this matter, right? Or your parent now has another relationship, has another child. You, you know, you know. Um, so I, I do feel sorry for children because it's not just about the divorce. It's also about after the divorce when their parents have, a, which is obviously their right to do, you know, mm -hmm. right. Um, but you then have to trust that your parent has good judgment when they bring this new person into your life, that this person is going to be a good person in your life. Not always the case. And as a child, you don't have a choice about that. You know, if your mom goes and marries a guy who's a complete a-hole, you know, and you're supposed to live with him, you don't have a choice about that. Um, sometimes it could even be dangerous. Mm -hmm. If that person is an abuser, you know, you're bringing a predator into your children's home. Well, and, and, and not even if, if the partner is an actual abuser, you know, it can just be like a known abuser. It can be like the statistics on that are pretty yeah. solid that the, yeah. when you bring, especially a male, when you and bring, a, you know, the, the, the opportunity for abuse. Yeah. It's skyrockets. Yeah. 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 The greatest danger to any child is male and mm -hmm. even greater when it's an unrelated male. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, this goes back to protection, you see, protection of, you know, where there's a, where there's a father, um, you know, is less likely than an unrelated male would come and challenge because he knows that there is someone who may be of equivalent strength who would defend their property, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And again, at one point of time, children were seen as their father's property. And so if you mess with a child, you mess with a man's property, he was entitled to defend himself against you, um, even, you know, by deadly force. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is still that psychological, and, and even, you don't even need like predators, like pedophiles. I mean, that's very extreme. Mm -hmm. Just psychological mm -hmm. abuse, mm -hmm. you know, just making you feel like you're not wanted, you're not as good as their children, um, you know, just making you feel like you're an inconvenience that I'm just putting up with you because I have to be with your mom or your dad, you know, but really life would be so much better if you were not here. Um, all of this could psychologically affect a child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, significantly, it's not a small thing. Oh, no, no, yeah. hugely, hugely. Mm -hmm. And, and um, yeah, so when you talk about divorce, it's not just the, the here and now and getting that piece of paper. It's also what happens after, you know, you get married, you have a family. Now that family, for lack of a better word, is broken. It's broken. Mm -hmm. Now, this might bring certain benefits, but it also could bring certain drawbacks. And I think we can't just acknowledge that, oh, if a relationship is not working, it's healthier to be out of it. Yes, it is mm -hmm. healthier. But there are also effects, you know, on the children. But what's the alternative? Are you supposed to just never have a relationship ever? Um, I don't know. I know some people who have done that. Some people have said, I'm not going to have another relationship at least until my kids are in secondary school. That's when they're a bit more independent and if, you know, they're able to have their own space on time. Um, some people say, I don't, don't want until my kids have left home because then they're adults, they have their own lives and I have my own life. Um, and yeah. 
I know it's, it's, you know, unintended consequences too. You know, there's also things that just kind of happen that you, you know, it's, yeah, it's just tough. You know, it's just tough overall. It's, yeah, oh my goodness. It's horrible. Uh, it doesn't go away. Even if you're an adult, I tell you, it's very hard to accept seeing your parent with someone else. And you know, you, you get used to it over time and people grow to love their step parents. Mm-hmm. You know? but it doesn't, not for everyone. And again, it depends on what kind of child you have. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I haven't experienced it for myself, but I've seen friends experience it. And it's very visceral. I mean, my my mom is single. I mean, my dad passed away like 10 years ago now. Um, so, you know, and I, I guess there's nothing wrong if my mom wanted to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. But the idea of it is just, to me, it's just, and I have no idea why, it's just wrong. <laughs> yeah and i do get that this is completely selfish completely selfish but like psychologically i can't accept that you know i can't accept that like we were a family unit my dad has died and so it's just us you know that's it and i'm old enough i've got my own life i don't even live in yeah. the same <laughs> it's completely selfish but in my mind it's just like no no will not accept that you know yeah well and that's why the problem <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, and and that's why it's important to, you know, really carefully, you know, try and understand, well, not try, like really, really make a solid attempt to, to try and understand, you know, different perspectives and how things are viewed and, you know, it's, it's, you know, critical. Um, So to, I know we're kind of running out of time here, so we'll keep this last one brief. Um, But um, so cohabitation. uh, Yeah. One of those things that uh, mentioned at the beginning is is the thing that people like to think they know about, but generally oh, don't yeah. know a lot about. Um, but I do actually, I got a few statistics because I'm I'm prepped yeah. and ready to go. So uh, interestingly, um, so this is in in England and Wales. I'm uh, for these from 2018 and uh, 20, 2019. But um, so, the, you know, the fastest growing uh, family type between 2008 and 2018 are cohabiting couples. Um, in 2018, that number was 3.4 million uh, couples. And that, so cohabiting couples is the largest increase in families with dependent children. Um, and that's 1.3 million families in 2018. So, Obviously, the numbers are pretty significant, um, yeah, yeah. certainly significant enough that you have to address it. Um, but the problem with cohabitation is that you, you're not, you don't have the same rights as someone or legal status as someone who's in a marriage. And yeah. under certain circumstances, that can be uh, <laughs> very important. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'll hand that over to you. Yeah, well... Yeah, what, what you have said is basically you don't have the same rights as someone who's married. Um, and, and that becomes really stark when the relationship breaks down. Um, because obviously when a marriage breaks down and you get a divorce or a civil partnership where you get a dissolution, you can then make financial provisions for the division of property, um, the division of assets in a marriage. And, you know, these days it's, Usually the starting point is 50-50 or at least to make sure your needs are met. So when you're married or or in a civil partnership, when you're in a legally recognized relationship, um, it doesn't matter who 
paid for these assets, right? It doesn't matter whose name is on the title deed of the house. It will be seen as marital assets, you know, um, unless, of course, it has been ring-fenced due to certain other reasons, which I don't want to get into. But barring those reasons, assets owned by each party, you know, will be seen as in a common pot to be divided. And how it will be divided in what proportion will depend on the judge's discretion after they've gone through the factors. So, for example, if you're married or in a civil partnership and you are the economically weaker party, so, you know, the mortgage was, the house was bought by your, your, your spouse, right? Um, they are the, the breadwinner, you know, all the savings and all was yes. It doesn't matter that you didn't bring the money in. It doesn't matter that the property is held in their name. It will be put in that common pot that can be divided. But in a cohabiting relationship, um, because it's not a legally recognized relationship, when that relationship breaks down, it's just like a breakup. You each go your own way and you have no obligations to each other. You leave with what you brought in. So any assets that were in your name, you kept them. You have no obligation to share them with the other party. You have no obligation to um, maintain the other party, anything other than goodwill, really. So if both parties are equal, you know, equal, equally financially um, sort of, you know, on the same level, then that's fine. You, you just go your own way. The problem comes when, of course, the cohabiting relationship is such where one party has depended on the other. So for example, and this is overwhelmingly the woman, okay, um, given up her job, had children because of the children taking on caring responsibilities and therefore took a step back in her career, gave, you know, stuff like that. Um, and in the relationship has been depending on her, on her partner who, has, who is earning to you know, pay the bills, pay for the children. Now this relationship has broken up he can say, well, since I own the house, you have no rights here, get out. Um, I, or, you know, I don't have to give you anything other than child support, which is a joke. The child support system is a joke in this country. Um, so that's it. That's basically it. You know, so you're up there with the clothes on your back, right? Um, you have no claim on the house if it's not in your, your name. You could try to establish an interest by consulting constructive trust, resulting trust, something like that. Your chances are very slim. As you know from land law, there are very specific circumstances when equity will find that a constructive trust exists or resulting trust exists. Um, it costs money to go to court and try and claim that as well, which you might not have. It's If you lose, you have to pay all the costs, which deters a lot of people. So... Um, what recourse are you left with? You know, what recourse are you left with? You, you were in this relationship thinking that it's permanent, you know, investing yourself in this relationship. You felt protected. Um, you shouldn't have because there was no legal document protecting you, but you felt protected because you took the word of someone that you trusted and now it's all fallen apart. And you might say, well, all these years I spent looking after the children while you were working, you were, it counts for nothing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because, yeah. Um, so that's what a lot of people don't know. And it's a shock to a lot of people and a lot of English people. I have no idea why they don't know this. I really don't have <laughs> a clue why they don't. But 
you wouldn't believe the number of them that actually thinks that if you live with someone long enough, and especially if you have children with them, you have some rights. They genuinely believe this. Now, they cannot articulate to you what those rights are, <laughs> but they are adamant that you must have some rights. Because mm -hmm. after all, I have lived together with someone for all these years. I've had these children, etc. Something must come out of this. They absolutely believe that. And they just won't believe it if you tell them that it doesn't. They just won't believe it. And I suppose society doesn't help either. You know, like, for example, you know, cohabitants and spouses, like, there are certain... Like you could claim against the will of a cohabitant, not as much as you as a spouse, but you have certain rights. Um, like you look at immigration, okay? Um, if you are cohabiting, you know you can um, you can apply for a visa for your cohabitant to come into the country if you can prove that you were in a committed relationship. If you have evidence, um, so things like that lead people to believe that. Yeah, it's the same. You know, you must have some rights, right? It's the same. Um, but it, it doesn't, right? And I, I don't know how to get this message across. Um, I remember a good friend of mine, um, she, you know, at, and she like every job she has been in, right? Because she's very friendly and, you know, chats with anyone. And every job she has been in, someone at her workplace is, is cohabiting and believes that, like, they have rights with their partner. <laughs> she takes this and she's like, I know this for a fact because my friend is a family law lecturer and one thing that she has drilled into my head is that cohabitants do not have the same rights as married couples and they just refuse to believe her. And she's like, Vicky, I don't know what's wrong with these people. They just won't believe me. They won't believe me. And I said, well, you know, let's hope they don't have to find out the hard way, really. That's horrible. But it is a real problem. Mm -hmm. It is a real problem. Um, I lurk on this internet site um, called Mumsnet, you know, just, just for the lols. And um, it's like a forum problem page where people write in and people can. And it gives me a lot of material to create like family law problem questions as well. Mm -hmm. so oh, yeah. But you won't believe it. At least once a week, someone writes in and goes, you know, I've been living with my partner. Um, we have two children, seven and five um, He's been abusive. He's been this and that. Um, if I leave him, can I, can I still remain in the house? You know, I have, haven't worked. And they are so shocked when people respond and say, no, if the house is in his name, you really don't have any rights. You could try constructive trust is hard. You know, did you contribute anything to the mortgage? No, you know, but I bought like curtains, you know, I paid for the cleaners and, you know, bills. Mm, that's not enough. I'm sorry. Um, and, and they are shocked when they realize what a financial predicament they are in. And even worse, some of them are like, well, then I can't leave then because I'll be out on the street. I have to go to a woman's refuge. I have to live in a hostel with my children and I can't do that to them. So you just have to live with an abusive person because they hold the purse strings. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they were married, you could at least have a share of the house. You could rent a flat, something, you know, something. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it's it's a very big gap in the law, um, especially as you with the statistics. You know, it's such a growing demographic, and out of those millions, yeah, some literal of them millions, are, yeah, yeah, literal millions. millions, 
some of them are going to run into trouble. Mm-hmm. And when they run into trouble, they realize that there's no law that's going to help them, you know. And again, this goes back to that patriarchal protection thing, right? Um, women are disadvantaged by having children because it takes a toll. It reduces, you know, your income earning capacity for a few years at least um, if you look after your children yourself. Um, and it, it limits you in the types of jobs you can take. So if you are going to risk that economic, um, you know, factor, then at least make sure you're married so that if something goes wrong, you are protected in some way. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, even women who are married on divorce, they still fare worse, you know, financially. But if you're not married, you fare even worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the thing with cohabitation. And I guess the debate now is, well, should there be laws then? Should there be laws to regulate? Should there be laws that recognize the sacrifices that um, one cohabitee has made during the relationship and financially um, address that to, to um, you know, sort of rebalance the economic uh, um, imbalance? Um, it's all at a sort of law commission consultation, you know, stage. And and I think, yeah, that's where we have debate. Um, some people say, look, it's a growing demographic. You can run away as much as you like, but the demand will just grow and grow. So you might as well regulate it. Um, there is the other side, which to which I belong to, really, is that there is marriage and there is civil partnership. If you want rights, go for either one of them. Mm-hmm. So people who choose not to do that usually have very good reasons why they don't want to get married. It is because they deliberately wish not to have those legal obligations trust upon them. And so I think it's unfair to say, well, you know, other people are getting in trouble because they haven't taught this out. And therefore, other people are getting into trouble because they haven't taught this out. Therefore, we're going to punish even those of you who have taught it out and who have really good reasons why you don't want to get married by making blanket laws. Mm-hmm. I mean, at one point of time, when, when I first started teaching family law, I was for laws for cohabitation because that was the only way same-sex couples could at least have some rights. At that time, there was no civil partnership. There was no same-sex marriage. So same-sex people could only live together, right? They had no choice. And so they were left unprotected. So to me, I thought, okay, that's a really good reason why we should have laws for cohabitants. But today, there's really no excuse. There's marriage for opposite sex and for same sex. There's civil partnership for opposite sex and for same sex as well. So whichever type of relationship you have, you have a type of legal relationship that that can change your status. You know, if you were like a feminist who believed that marriage was patriarchal and you felt that it was oppressive, have a civil partnership, right? Civil partnership is a new... You have choice now. So somebody who chooses not to go for either one of these is making a statement. I don't want to be legally tied down. And I believe we should respect that statement. Mm -hmm. Well, and I I will say... Because we're we're currently in two different jurisdictions right now. So I will say with uh, being in uh, British Columbia, um, I'm not 
the details I am, I do not know. So do not quote me on any of this, but I do know that generally speaking, you can acquire uh, a cohabiting couple um, can then become considered uh, a common law marriage. So like the common, you, you know, the, yeah. What everybody thinks that's happens. That's a very misleading term, but yeah. yes. So that so what everybody thinks happens, yes, that does happen. You can acquire that common law marriage status. I do not know how long it takes to get that. I do not know what your rights are when you do acquire that. So I'm vague on on the details, but um, it just goes to show that you know if, if you are, no matter how you want to look at it, moving in with someone is a pretty big step in the yeah. relationship and just your lifestyle. Like that's a big decision to make. So the emphasis here is if you're gonna do something like that, be aware and, and take the time because you can look all this stuff up. It's not hard to find the, the details on this, not at all. It, it's fairly easy, but you have to put the effort in. So I think, uh, yeah, if, if I can say anything to anybody, it's that if you are doing that, if you are living with someone or you're thinking of living with someone, in England or Canada, um, or anywhere, really, um, look yeah. it up, find out what your rights are, find out, you know, maybe you decide, okay, maybe we actually should end up getting married. And, you know, so yeah. do your due diligence, do your homework, because it's your life. And you don't want to be screwed at the end of the day, because that's tough. <laughs> that's, yeah, there's a growing body of law, actually, um, in Canada, um, especially like, you know, the common law jurisdictions, like BC and stuff. Um, of disputes in courts from cohabitants because um, a few provinces in Canada have the regime where if you're cohabiting and one party has suffered a financial or economic loss as a result of the relationship, they can apply for you know um, some money from the other to redress that um, loss that they have suffered. And there's a growing body of law uh, in Canada. It's a really quite interesting article. I've downloaded it and I haven't had the time to read it yet. It's a review of the Canadian cases um, to, to see whether it would be feasible to introduce such a regime here. Um, and I don't know. I mean, just on my scanning of the article, it doesn't look promising to me. It, looks <laughs> like another, it just looks like another arena or a battleground that is going to benefit rich cohabitants who can afford a court battle. You know, ultimately, it's it's the poor cohabitants or not poor, but just sort of middle, like regular, you know, they're not going to have money for a protected court battle. And they're still going to suffer the drawbacks and the benefits, the, the drawbacks, you know, when the relationship breaks, breaks down. So I think what you say is absolutely correct. You know, do that research, be, be educated. I think they should teach this in schools. And I don't know why they don't, right? Um, it doesn't. It doesn't help, of course, that you know terms like common law marriage are used, because you know in America, like in Canada, we have this like common law marriage, and so people they are so influenced by like North American like media and culture, and they go, oh yeah, common law marriage. Um, so they think that it it applies all over the world when it doesn't, and especially when you lose the term common law, which you know, started in England. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, common law marriage. And then you realize that no, you know, in, in the country where the common law originated, they do not recognize this common law marriage. In fact, this is an American term that's been imported. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's, yeah. Um, so I, 
you need to get through to people, you know, teach them at a really young age. Um, this should be taught in schools so that when people cohabit, they make the correct decision. Um, because once, once you are in a relationship, you don't think with your head, you think with your heart, right? And, and it's, it's difficult because people asked, you know, students have asked me before, like, okay, so who would you advise um, <laughs> your child to cohabit? And I'm, and I'm really honest because I've always made no secret in class that I am against reform. I don't believe it should be legally regulated for the reasons that I just said especially today, you know, people who are cohabiting when there's choice have, have made a statement, they've made a choice. Um, and so students will be like, okay, if it's your own daughter, you know. Well, <laughs> yeah, they're trying to trick you. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to trick me, but I, I honestly, the students have got nothing to hide. I said, well, if I had a child, I would be very practical. I would just ask them, are you the economically stronger person in the relationship or the economically weaker one? If you're the economically stronger party, don't get married because you will lose out in a marriage. You will have to pay out half of, you know, all your assets are seen as marital assets. If you are the economically weaker party, get married, especially if you intend not to work because that protects you. And I said the same thing with cohabitation. If my child was the economically weaker party, I would not advise them to cohabit. Because especially if they intend to have children and give up work, because you get no protection. However, if my child was the economically stronger party, I would advise them to cohabit because you keep your assets. So it depends on who is my child in the relationship. So I'm not hypocritical. I will give advice depending on the situation. Um, but yeah, so no, I, I feel very strongly about this issue, actually. This is one of the few issues that if it does become law, will get me out on the street protesting. <laughs> I, I, do, I do take this very personally. Um, and, and I don't believe, you know, people who have made an educated decision should have to pay for the bad decisions made by others. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. I, this semester, I had a student who said, well, we, we could have an opt-in process, you know, so we could have the law. And cohabitants who want to opt in can sign up for it. And I said, there is already an opt-in process. It's called marriage and civil partnership. <laughs> and she was yeah. like, well, gee, that's true. Trying to really complicate things with that. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to choose to register something, just go and register a marriage or a civil partnership. Mm -hmm. You know, that's already an opt-in process. And then, of course, you know, there was like, okay, okay, opt out. So... So people who don't want it can opt out. And I was like, Yeah, it's problematic. Why put that responsibility on them? You mm -hmm. know? So whichever way you look at it, I, I don't think it is. But there is no denying that there is talk about this, mm -hmm. right? Um, my own member of parliament actually um, brought this up once in and and there's a bill, well, there's always a bill about cohabitation floating around. But as of yet, the government hasn't made any serious noise about reform in this area. There's a lot of debate. Mm -hmm. But whether that debate is going to... Not as yet. Yeah. So I like the debate because it gives us something to discuss in class, gives students something to think about. Mm -hmm. um, but will it become law like in the next year, two years, three years? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, um, I think that's a good place to stop for today. 
as much as I would love yeah. to go on. I know I got, you know. No, I had a good time. I had a good time. Yeah, I could go on all day about family law, so. So, no, it's great. You're, it was great having you on and yeah, and talking about some uh, some important issues there. So yeah, the moral of the story is look stuff up, do your research. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's your life. You have to be responsible for uh, you know the decisions that you make, and and you know you don't want to you don't want to screw yourself like unnecessarily. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, does make a lot of sense. Don't do that. But yeah, um, yeah. thank you so much for uh, tuning in and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having me. I I enjoyed myself. Um, yeah, so if we can have a next one at any time. Great. Thanks so much, Vicky. Yeah.